Well, the only good thing about all these farewells is I've been able to write the word valedictory quite a lot, which is a really amazing it's word. A beautiful word. So if, if, if any of us ever leave the podcast, I think we should be forced to give a valedictory speech oh, yeah. at the end. Can we, can we commit to that now? Yep. Excellent. I almost want to leave so I can give one. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 92. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. And uh, yes, great to be back with you. We've got another uh, exciting episode coming up uh, this week. We've, we're going to be talking about early childhood teachers' uh, qualifications and the National Quality Framework. And then we've got a bit of a, a bonus uh, extra thing at the end um, with Leanne uh, reflecting on her time at the uh, the AJEC conference, the Australian Journal, Journal of Early Childhood Conference, which has taken place uh, in the last uh, last week, I think that was Leanne. So. And we should say you it were presenting at that week. conference as well, Leanne. So, oh, I did. I did a little presentation, but that was why I wasn't here last week. Talking was it well received? Um, yes, I think so. It's always hard Good. to know at those things. There's so many people and so many clever people that you kind of feel like, oh, I'm not clever enough. But anyway. Liam, how could you ever feel not clever enough? You're one of the cleverest people I know. And that is year. why I sit with you guys once a week. <laughs> is there any research on podcasts and the dissemination of amazing banter and early childhood advocacy through the medium of podcasts? Anyone presenting research yeah, on that? Maybe that's a paper for us for next year. Yeah, yeah. that's a challenge for next year. Does bantering actually add to the quality of anyone's early education and care experience? Oh, I think we could do a great research project on that. <laughs> Absolutely. Sign me up. Hmm. Um, so we'll be we'll be cutting to those topics in a little while. Um, just a reminder: the exploring the NQS is continuing. We've just hit episode or element two point two point one on supervision. This was a really fun one. Supervision is one of those topics that I think sets people's teeth on edge, and I think I called it a touchy subject in all the the social media posts. But I had, I, I love talking about supervision, so I had a good time on that episode. It's obviously so necessary. There was a child left in a bus at a Northern Territory service this week for two hours. Oh, no. oh right. Okay, no. so that's a must-listen for everybody. That's a must-listen. I don't know if it would have prevented that issue. I've got to say, though, I did work for an early childhood organisation um, that had buses around, and it was the it was the biggest, I think, risk and the biggest thing that stressed people out mm. was those buses. And, mm. I, and I remember... It, in the current organisation I worked at, I think someone made the mistake of raising the idea of a bus to me, and I think I immediately curled in the fetal position and said, "It's not happening. We do not don't, don't do buses. It's it's too crazy." But um, of course, for a lot of you know regional rural centres, they're kind of a, a requirement. We might have to do. Yeah, it's not even an option, and it's actually you know increases the access for children to early childhood education. Yes, so that was a very metro like review buses. I just had then. <laughs> I just yeah. I, I just remember all the critical incidents we had to deal with involving the buses. It just stresses me out. Um, so you can you can ac- exactly. So if um we've we've got quite a few new listeners to exploring the NQS. So thank for, thank you for everyone who's supporting the show. Uh, but we're continuing with our new weekly uh, uh, segment, which is quote of the week. Um, and Lisa, did you want to do run run the quote through with us this week? Oh yeah, I'll, 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 I, c- I can't possibly imitate her voice, but I'll just read what it, what what the quote we've chosen, and then imagine someone else other than me saying it. There remains much to do. I have publicly argued that our early childhood system is fundamentally broken. 
it should be universal quality and as simple to navigate as our school system. Who do you reckon clap, said clap, that? Clap. Yes, but we know who said that. Scott Morrison. Who said it? The Prime it Minister. Was, uh... Kate Ellis's valedictory speech in <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> and um, it, was a, it was amazing, an amazing speech and very, very moving. It was, but I just particularly liked that it's broken. It should be universal and as simple to navigate as a school system. And Oh, wouldn't that be nice for parents not to have to work out if they were going to a state-based service or a federal-based service and if they're entitled for 16 hours or 8 hours or whatever. School children, parents of school children don't have to do that. They just go. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. Yeah. I just, incredible. Yeah, I just remember hearing that. Um, uh, I, I luckily managed to stumble across twi- Twitter and, and saw that she was speaking live and I, I listened to it live. And um, I think I, I mentioned on Twitter later, I, she's, Kate Ellis is going to be a real loss to the early childhood policy space. I think we're really going to miss her. She, she has a good, really good understanding of the complexity of the system and I think had some really great ideas to fix it. I think it's a real shame she won't be in, in government if, uh, if Labor win the next election. Yeah. Definitely, yeah, and I think she did. I mean, I think she was very optimistic about the um, the people who were, uh, you know, involved now, and and she really highlighted that. So we've just got to keep keep our optimism and follow we through. We do, but we also things. need to actually remember the the line that she directed towards advocates, which was. It was deeply disappointing that many of those charged with being the key advocates for children sought to compromise with the government rather than staunchly oppose the decreasing of many children's access. It is unjustifiable that we've seen an increase in services focused on boosting profits ahead of best meeting children's needs. And I think maybe that's some very good guidance for everyone, for us all. Yes, some yep, very some sure. very strong guidance on the way out. I think there. Mm, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, all right, so I think uh, we uh, we've Kate Ellis is obviously leaving the next election. She'll be around for you know the next um, few months, and I, I think the plan is we'd, we'd probably like to take a little bit of a retrospective of Kate's time. She's been she had a significant role to play in early childhood policy and regulation, and and sort of as a as a teaser, I should say, I've been talking with her office about conducting an interview with her, looking back at her time. So hopefully that can Liam, happen in the next little while. I wonder if it would be better timing to do it once she's actually left. Yeah, I think, look, strike all the iron's hot. I think she's clearly uh, willing to talk about this stuff and, and be quite uh, honest and forthright in her assessment. So my view is it's easy to do when she has a staff help helping organise it. It might be a little trickier when she's, <laughs> uh, it, when she's in Adelaide all the time. <laughs> and manage two children. Well, well maybe be really before and if we after. Could, if we could all do it, like rather than an interview, if we could all, you know, sure. if we could... Well, Do let, it as a podcasty thing. Okay. Well, lest this episode become background planning for a future episode, we might <laughs> park, park it there. I'm just thinking, is this staying in or going out? Oh, this is definitely <laughs> this staying is, in. This is the sort of high-level planning that goes on. This exactly. is the bantering, I think. <laughs> this is very, very possibly that. So, so I think that's a, that's a teaser for a future episode, possibly in a in a couple of months. But um, that would be right. Look, great. Um, I've been fortunate enough to meet Kate Ellis a couple of times, and um, been her yeah knowledge of the sector. 
um, is, is pretty incredible. And we should remember we kind of we were sort of locked in these current advocacy battles around the activity test and all those kind of things. That it's it's often sort of feels like the dim and distant past. That you know when she was the actual minister for early education, that was the time of the implementation of the national quality framework and the universal um, access national partnership agreement. She's um, she she's leaving a pretty big legacy for. Uh, yeah, and I think it was it was definitely. I mean, I, I would I think of it as a quite a golden age. But I have to say that we were eternally grateful um, when I was at community childcare that Kate was often, you know, the first one who jumped on board for the political forums, and she was very generous with her time, and she was um, ex- exceptionally open to listening to what we had to say. Which I think, you know, I have to say was always a real bonus when she she was um able to come along to those forums and yeah it it always felt like a very it felt like a safe space when kate was there (laughs) and she's from adelaide as well which uh, you know which is a big thing it's yeah because i think when you're working with politicians you you know you want to be able to say things and you want to be able to feel safe to say those things and i think that she always created that opportunity and you know who else um, we need to say something about just because she's on the on the verge of leaving and has done her valedictory speech is Jenny Macklin. Yes. I, like, does yeah. everyone remember her role in yep. you know, the, the um, national quality framework and um, like in everything leading up to Rudd's election and post Rudd's election? Mm. She yep. was some um, family spokesperson at that stage, and you know, like. She's consistently spoken up for childcare, consistently spoken up against things that, you know, were silly, like the activity test, and consistently been one of the, you know, real battlers for a decent childcare system in Australia. Yeah. Sorry, childcare. I'm not sure why I'm saying childcare. They get we know what you in mean. the end. <laughs> yeah. There's some heavy hitters leaving. Labor Party. I think it'll be interesting to see yeah. their um their sort of next big ministry group. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, we'll wrap up our intro there. We'll be taking a quick break, and then we'll be coming back with our main topic for the night, which is looking at early childhood teachers, qualifications, and the national quality framework. So stay with us. All right, everyone. Welcome back. So uh, this week we wanted to uh, touch on the topic of early childhood teachers, uh, qualification requirements, and the national quality framework. Um, so, Lisa, I might, uh, rather than doing a big intro uh, myself this time, I might turn it over to you. This is uh, a topic you wanted us to tackle. Um, you know, why Why is this something we're, we're discussing at the moment? Why has this become an issue this year? Okay. We're just discussing what this is an issue, once again, because of something that's happened in New South Wales. But that doesn't mean that it's, you know, only got the likelihood of affecting New South Wales. It may have ripples throughout Australia. So um, essentially the private um, providers group, Australian Childcare Alliance, the New South Wales branch of that body, did a lot of media a few weeks ago calling for a New South Wales Legislative Council, which is our upper house in New South Wales, review of why New South Wales needed to have more early childhood teachers than the other states. 
So for those of you that don't know, New South Wales has long, as long as I've been in the sector, needed around one teacher for around every 30 children, give or take um, a, a few. And so when the national quality framework, um, when the national regulations were brought in, that um, requirement was grandfathered. So it still it means we've always had more teachers than the other states, early childhood teachers in our rooms, in our services, and we still do. But um, the current uh, leadership of um, ACA in New South Wales believe that that's putting too much it's the cost of that is too high for New South Wales services. And they're running a, an argument that there's no evidence that it improves quality and that it's just too much red tape, basically, in New South Wales, and we need to get rid of those additional teachers. So that's kind of why we're talking about it, because, A, they're pushing for an inquiry, and, B, um, uh, it'll certainly come up, you know, um, over the next few months as they try and do what they can to unpick that part of the regulations for New South Wales. You crazy New South Wales people. So what, what sort of happened as a result of this? Um, as, as if the ACA um, put out any further statements? What's what sort of been happening in this space? Look, it's been, it's been very, very interesting to watch and very funny. For those of you that don't follow the politics of peak organisations and large providers a bit. It'll kind of be, sound a bit strange, but um, they have, ACA New South Wales have managed to simultaneously aggravate every large provider and peak organisation in New South Wales and every other branch of their own organisation. So... First of all, um, all the organisations in New South Wales, um, we've got a state election coming, so they'll put their names, 25 different organisations and large providers put their names to a letter to the state government and the opposition saying this is what we want for early education and care. And within a few weeks of that letter having gone out, um, ACA had... ACA New South Wales had colonised that letter or misrepresented it, saying that 25 organisations, um, you know, agreed that New South Wales was over-regulated and that there was an issue. And the other organisations went, uh, nope, that's not what we said at all. You've misrepresented that and we'd really like you to withdraw that very, very quickly. And so we then had the funny situation of the CEO of ACA New South Wales putting out an apology to all the other organisations, basically on the lines of, I'm sorry, we teach children to always say they're sorry when they've done something wrong, I've done something wrong, I'm sorry. And that's quite an amazing thing to have to do as the CEO of an organisation to apologise to 25, 24 other organisations in the sector and say I've done something wrong. 
But those organisations were very quite angry at how they'd been misrepresented because most of them are absolutely pro-regulation, absolutely pro-national quality framework and definitely pro our current teacher um, numbers in New South Wales. And I imagine their staff, you know, would have, if they'd heard it, heaven help them, would have been horrified. Well, some of them did hear about it and some of them were horrified and they were getting, you know, calls from members and from staff and stuff saying, why aren't you supporting, you know, the teacher requirement in New South Wales? So that's why how they heard about it so quickly and why they got on onto ACA and demanded the retraction of it so quickly. Mm. Yeah, good. So anyway, after that, um, you know, there was various things happened. There was a New South Wales political forum um, and it was made clear by um, uh, the organisations there, especially the New South Wales Children's Services Forum, that they definitely didn't approve of that message and they didn't believe, you know, that they were against any changes to the teacher regulations. And then within, a few, you know, about a week after that, so the time frame might not be quite right here, ACA National put out a thing saying, yeah, we don't agree with them either. <laughs> so when you're, Ouch. you know, when your <laughs> national body disowns you like that, then you really have gotten it wrong. Um, you know, I understand that... Um, uh, they were quite, in fact, furious with what the the disrepute that um, the New South Wales branch had brought on to their national body. So, do you do you, do you feel that there are particular um, you know parts of New South Wales ACA that have that lobbied that their CEO to you know put forward that position, and it was genuinely a mistake on his part. No, I think they knew what they were doing. I, yeah, no, I think they knew that what they were doing. I think they knew that they were misusing the words of the others. I don't think you can make a, a mistake that big, and I think it's fairly clear that most of you know New South Wales large providers and peak organisations are very pro teachers and are very pro you know, um, uh, a strongly regulated sector. Just mm. on background on that, and Leanne, you know this background, um, uh, ACA New South Wales used to be Childcare New South Wales and when it was Childcare New South Wales, it was initially um, run by people who were quite, anti-regulation and who believed that regulation increased the cost to providers. Um, after the, that kind of leadership of the organisation was overturned and a much more pro-quality leadership came in, including a CEO who was very pro-quality and a chairperson who was very um, pro-quality, the CEO left as you know, got another job, just moved on in life, and um, the uh, previous CEO was elected to the position, and so the organisation actually did a complete backflip and moved away from what had been their quite reasonable quality stance. 
um, and moved back the to a previous, position. Sorry, Lisa, the previous chair was re-elected. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, the previous chair was re-elected and um, took the organisation back to that um, anti-regulation, you know, um, very big um, proponents of talking about how much red tape there is in childcare. So, yeah, that, like, you know, it's all great drama and high stakes and et cetera. But in the end, you've got an organisation that managed to get, you know, they must have had a, been paying for a lot of media advice because they managed to get things on most national, uh, most Sydney news stations and in, you know, certain publications, et cetera. Um, you know, saying why why would New South Wales need this many teachers? They don't actually do anything. Well, that might be a good segue to tackle it. And look, since throughout the history of the podcast, I think with you and Leanne uh, both being based in New South Wales, New South Wales has a very unique, I think, um, political and advocacy space in the early childhood system. Um, oh, but, God, I doesn't know, it? <laughs> for, for, better, for better or worse. Um, but... One of the things that I've always found most interesting was the, the national quality framework was largely around um, standardising but lifting the, the, the quality requirements across early childhood centres. In New South Wales, you can make the Thank argument you that... Thank for remembering that, Liam, because I, so many people don't. I remember everything you ever tell me, Lisa. I listen <laughs> staunchly every time. But you can make the argument that in some areas, New South Wales actually had to lower their quality requirements to kind of meet the... Um, to meet the new requirements, uh, particularly around, we, we talked about access for three-year-olds, which wasn't really about the National Quality Framework, but was around about the same time, um, and some of the uh, some of the requirements of the National Quality Framework. But um, it might be worth taking even to step back from that and saying, and Leanne, I might, I might put this one to you, why, 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 has had New, why has New South Wales historically just had much higher numbers of teachers regulated to work in, in centres, even before the NQF? Um. You know, it's interesting about that question, and I'm sure that Lisa will give it uh, give the real the real truth behind. Well, not the real truth. I'll do the real the real thing, and then Lisa will back me up with some excellent source of data. But um, it's that's how it always was. Like the regulate, well, not always, obviously, but the regulations always required a teacher over a certain number of um, children in a setting, and so it, in my personal history in early childhood that was always required so for me when you know when we were going through this process of the national quality framework it was like oh that's a battle we don't even have to think about in New South Wales because it is already in place and the um, ratio was always one to ten and that's why it has stayed that way so anything that was at a, a higher than national level um, in any state but New South Wales happened to be the one that had those those things they got to keep those those levels, which was fantastic um, because New South Wales does so many things badly that it was pretty exciting to think that um, we were the forerunner for that and for the, you know, the babies, the one to four as well. And one of the, the – sorry, Liam, one of the things that was quite um, – that I really liked about when the change did come in um, is that – Previously, New South Wales had had a lot of services that were 29-place services. They were all small for-profit services that were 29 places. Why was that? 
because if you're in initially in our state-based regulations, if you were larger than 29, you had to have an early childhood teacher. So a lot of for-profit services chose deliberately to be just under that number so that they weren't required to employ an early childhood teacher. So what New South Wales pushed for, and remember when the National Quality Framework first came in that we were talking about improving things, they decided that that number requirement where you needed a teacher, or at least access to a teacher, should drop to 25 to stop services, you know, sitting at that 29 point and to ensure that all the services that were 29 that weren't great quality because they didn't have a teacher there were in fact forced to get one. Um, and I think that there were quite a lot of 20, like quite small services in New South Wales. It is, you know, it has had that history of small services, but also in the public space as well. And um, quite a lot of those neighbourhood type centres of which I was involved with one had, they employed teachers over and above the regulations. So that's the, the history around the, um, the those services indeed, but it was also there were also some smaller um, public services or not-for-profit services as well that did operate in that way, maybe sometimes for that very reason, but then off, then moved to having um, teachers in, in those services as well. Hmm. Well, so I think we should... Um... We should also take a look at. So, obviously, if you're if you're listening to this podcast, we're going to assume we're probably preaching to the choir here around the importance of quality and the importance of higher qualifications for those working with young children. But um, we should probably say, look, what, you know, and Leanne's might be another good question for you. But um, why are why is it so important to have early childhood teachers working? With young children, so obviously the, the devil's advocate argument, or well, it's not even devil's advocate. There are people making this argument uh, today, and Lisa's gone through the history of that sort of advocacy position, which is that um, it costs more, which is passed on to families. Uh, it overregulates the sector and makes things more difficult. But uh, why why are we saying that this is actually something that's really important and is really great that New South Wales has these higher requirements? Well, basically, because the research <coughs> shows that well-trained professionals and those that have higher qualifications do make the difference for children's outcomes, for their cognitive and social outcomes. So there's a correlation between the, um, the higher levels of qualification and the outcomes for children. And it's not actually about that kind of instructional capacity. It's about the, the ability that a, a higher qualified person is able to create the environment that is appropriate for children and you know they're the sorts of relational things the interactions that happen the reflective practice that happens there as well um, and that you know that's made up of an understanding of child development and an understanding of children's perspectives there's also leadership within their problem solving and being able to elicit children's ideas now we can say that that happens at all um, levels of training for educators but of course you, it's not it's not possible to say that everybody in a service can do that to a, an equivalent level and the research shows also that uh, the different levels of training, can, um, you know, at the Certificate 3 level, the capacity that people have to create that environment is enriched 
by having a person in it who has a higher level qualification. So it's almost like a mentoring role that happens within a setting. And I always sort of think about this type of stuff is if you're sitting in a dentist chair, you're probably more confident to have your teeth attended to by the dentist and you're very happy to have um, them supported by someone who ha- who is um, the assistant, okay? And they're, they're able to show them all of those things and that person supports the dentist. If I went to a, um, a, a knee surgeon or whatever, I would really like to have my knee operated on by the orthopaedic specialist with the high level of training. And I, I, th- I think that we, we can apply that in an early childhood setting. That's not being offensive to any level of qualification at all. We have to be logical about it and say a qualification does actually matter and it is about the environment that is created by those, all of those qualifications and by that capacity to enrich the environment for young children. Leanne, I even remember reading some research. That, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure where now or what it was, but that um, the quality of interactions by all the other staff increased when um, when a teacher was employed in the service. So it yeah. wasn't even just looking at the teachers' interactions, it was the, um, you know, it was the other staff. Yeah, so it's that it's that richness that you get where the, the modelling happens, the, um, you know, even it's sort of talking to one of my peers the other day who's just spent a little bit of time in occasional care and one of the other staff members said to her and she had a, the other staff member had a certificate three qualification and she said to her, I would just love to sit around and watch you do this with the children, work with the children all the time so that I can learn some of these things that you're doing and and my practice would be enriched. True story. Um, And I think that that's, you know, we we need to look at this as a, a professional development opportunity as well for all staff. So qualifications are they really do matter. They're really important for children's outcomes, but they're also important for the whole of the um, the well-being and outcomes for the staff as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's I think it's really important you've sort of said all that, Leanne, because there is um, there is an interesting, I think, defensiveness or, or um, a people I find can sometimes be quite quick to take offence at these. Um, this idea when it is you know it, it's not about disparaging a particular qualification and the national quality framework is structured around that there is a mixture of people with different qualifications working in services but it, 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 it is a fact that the, the you know the, the bachelor level of education is a higher level than the diploma which is at a higher level than the certificate three and my response to that is that, that, that everyone has something to contribute but what I would hope is that you know an educator who has obtained a certificate three is thinking about well I want to go off and get my diploma and come better in my mm-hmm. job and then someone with a diploma thinks you know I don't want to I want to go and get my teaching degree and those who have a teaching degree should then be thinking about you know, I want to get my master's or my PhD. We shouldn't be... Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. a continuum. It's a continuum we should be thinking about. And and as as people who are engaged in a sector that is all about education, we should be thinking <laughs> about our own education as well. And we shouldn't be... I don't think that we should be shy 
about, um, you know, crowing about this level of qualification. As, as I was saying to my my um, lovely group of students last year that I taught at university, get out there and challenge other people with qualifications at a bachelor level and say, you know what, I have had to go through the same process of training and achieving a qualification as you have in another professional sector because there's an Australian qualifications framework and everybody has to work to that. So, you know, I think that we, we need to to not be sort of, you know, saying, okay, it's it's you know, we're all the same. You know, we're all the same in the sector. It's like I think we have to look at the capacity everybody has and think about this, you know, moving along this continuum and increasing the opportunity for both uh, educators and for children. But that's one of the things that, um, like, that ACA New South Wales repeat often. They say, oh, but this diploma staff that are just as good or if not better than teachers. And, you know, you get a good Cert 3 in the room and that person can be just as good as teachers. What would you say to that? I would say that is awesome. So how about supporting them to get that next level of qualification so you can pay them appropriately? <laughs> because it cost money, Leanne. Yeah, and that's that's actually you know the biggest the biggest challenge that we have is that it is that it is it, you know keeping people at a level of qualification that we can pay them at a lower level and and I, it was very it was very interesting this um actually a, a a little snip from the AJEC symposium where there was this perspective on we we in the past it was the people who were you know of the rich the the rich families in Australia who were providing early childhood to raise the the status of children and the and the, and the well-being of children and now what we've got is very low paid educators who are serving in the childcare sector serving people who are at a much higher level of pay so it's interesting that that's turned around but i would i would say yes support those people to get that higher level qualification actually pay them what they deserve to be paid I mean, everybody deserves to be paid at a higher level, full stop. But but move people through that continuum and support them. Absolutely. Good For answer. sure. Good answer, Leanne. Um, well, I think we should, you know, and, and I know this is a, a, a topic that's particularly, you know, uh, near and dear to your heart, Leanne, in terms of, and you and you know, it's great. You're, you're actually, you know, still out there working with students on a range of leadership issues. But, um, you know, what could you say, um, and look, and this could be, I think, be an episode in and of itself. But, you know, if I gave you a sort of five minute clock, what, you know, what do you think we need to be looking at in terms of, you know, improving teacher performance um, and then supporting the teachers in other childhood centres more? Um, I think that we need to be thinking about retaining the wonderful people who graduate um, in the in the first instance and then you know providing them with great mentoring particularly in the first year when they leave um, their leaving leaving their training institution the institution where they get their qualification from because in the school sector there are so many um, opportunities for first year out teachers to receive mentoring and support to actually continue in the profession and be be supported and uplifted and I think we don't do enough of that and if we're able to do that in, and engage people in the early childhood story the minute that they left their their institution they could continue with this you know great sort of 
glassy-eyed, you know, happiness about um, the shiny happiness of going into a profession because it's hard. That first year is really hard. So that would be probably the first the first step to improving teacher performance. And I know you put the clock on me, so I won't go on too long. But I, it's also about um, low-cost professional development to improve teacher performance and also uh, giving people a real opportunity to engage in leadership professional development because that is what that's what's actually going to improve teacher performance as well and a probably a, a, a better approach to accreditation so that it's teacher accreditation so that it's not a so it's not a, a, a um, I suppose school system accreditation we need to look properly at teacher accreditation and think about what that actually looks like to improve teacher performance and status so that they would probably be a I think you've you've forgotten one thing of course that would help to improve the quality of teacher is by improving teacher wages which meant that a high quality person or a higher educated person or you know if you know people who do really well at school might actually think of it as a, a career worth entering. Yes. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you were just Sorry, about to say it, I think, Liam. <laughs> I was <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I think that's a very good spot to wrap up that discussion. So we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with uh, a quick intro to Leanne's reflections on that very AJAC symposium. So stay with us and we'll be back in just a sec. Welcome back, everyone. So, um, Leanne, as we sort of talked about in the intro, you were um, both presenting and attending the, the recent AJEC symposium, and you were sort of fortunate enough at the time to record some some summaries of some of the presentations you had. Do you want to give us a you know, quick intro to, to what we'll be hearing uh, for the next little while? Yeah, so I, I um, really enjoyed going to the AJEC symposium. I'm a, I'm a bit of a fledgling, fledgling researcher. I'm not a not a very advanced one, and uh, my I only did a very tiny little presentation on my one of my methods, but um, I found it fascinating. I found it uh, very interesting to be in the company of researchers who are just absolutely incredible, you know, long-term academics. And this is the symposium that is um, run by Early Childhood Australia in accordance with the Australian Journal of Early Childhood. And they had some pretty exciting news, which I won't say anything about, but keep an eye out for that. That was pretty exciting. Um, And it was an opportunity to listen to uh, researchers who were very experienced talk about their research, but also talk for some people who were uh, maybe a little bit like me, undertaking their PhD and talking about where they're up to with that research or people who had recently completed their PhDs or were doing some fascinating research around things like well-being. I mean, you interviewed um, Sandy and Tamara and Helen, so they also spoke um, the, the also about um, early, uh, sorry, educator complexity and uh, the role of educators and their um their, com- their complex jobs that they are undertaking. So there were some really fascinating things. And all I did was just recorded some reflections about the particular presentations that I went to. Not that they're anything definitive and I didn't want to give too much of a position on people's research because I'm sure I would have communicated it not particularly um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in exactly the way they would like to hear it. Uh, but I just was inspired by 
the research that I heard about and I wanted to share that with others. So that was why I recorded that. So I hope people enjoy listening to that. I'll also give a few links so people can follow up on that research as well. Well, we're very grateful you took the time to record those thoughts, Leanne. So um, we'll, we'll head to um, the Leanne's reflections now and uh, we, we hope you enjoy them. The Symposium kicked off with an opening keynote from Professor Adrian Piccoli, who many will know as the former Minister for Education in New South Wales. The Gonski Institute is a new institute for research and advocacy, and they're basically trying to make education more equitable and to reduce the inequities in education. So they're building networks and partnerships to understand the problems that are happening in education. They're doing direct research on education and and, uh, specifically in educational leadership, advocating for change, and then they're looking to empower the decision makers. The Gonski Institute sounds like a really exciting opportunity, and at the moment it is uh, mostly focused on everything but early childhood, although they do see that they're going to have an early childhood agenda up ahead. Professor Pickley's uh, presentation was really quite interesting, but in some ways very frustrating. I think that uh, his perspective on how we should actually deliver on the early childhood agenda was probably counter to the way that he delivered on that when he was Minister for Education. And so for me, there were some frustrations that set in. Although he did say that early childhood education and care must be the next major reform after the NDIS and the Gonski School funding. Personally, I think that those things can operate side by side. And it's interesting to me that we have to wait for other major social reforms before we hit the early childhood policy reform. He highlighted a few challenges, that there was no clear unified voice in early childhood and uh, that there's a disjointed sector and the states are disjointed, although he did focus primarily on the disjointed states as opposed to the sector, which was probably fairly wise as he was in a room full of early childhood professionals from the sector. He also noted um, that there was some challenges in delivering on uh, expectations in early childhood because of this disjointed sector and the lack of shared agenda. But I think where any system has been set up to have different kinds of um, outcomes, meaning sometimes there is a part of the sector that sees early childhood education and children's wellbeing as an outcome, and another aspect of the sector sees it as uh, a workforce issue um, focused mostly on building their own profits. I think that that's a difficult thing because government has actually already set that clashing agenda up. Now, I'm not talking about a public versus private agenda here. I'm talking about different um, agendas within both of those sectors. So I found that that was a little bit frustrating. He did talk about um, the fact that he felt that we were far too kind to adults. And this would have, from my perspective, this has advocacy implications I think in the past where people have addressed issues and have actually, you know, addressed those issues in a firm manner, the fact that we have been um, ostracised or isolated 
in the advocacy field for expressing those views, to me, is it's really interesting that they're the sorts of things that are coming from someone who's an ex-politician who probably was responsible for taking um, some uh, offence at those uh, words that were directed at the Department of Education around the advocacy agenda. I think it's um, important that we try and push through with something like the Gonski Institute to ensure that they do follow through on an early childhood research agenda. This is uh, an institute that's um, based in the University of New South Wales and I think that it's going to attract a great deal of, of money and it's going to attract a great deal of attention. So my question really um, is, you know, what is the Gonski Institute going to do in terms of the research agenda for early childhood education? I went to a fascinating presentation by Jean Jackson and Andrea Nolan uh, titled Long Distance and Close-Up Perspectives on Social Advantage Among Early Childhood Education and Care Educators. This is a Australian Research Council funded study and it's a mixed method approach that is a mixed methods approach sorry that considers how early childhood educators can address intergenerational educational disadvantage by raising aspirations for their own learning and for the children with whom they work it recognizes the early childhood education and care workforce um, includes many educators from backgrounds of social and educational disadvantage whose own professional learning journeys have the potential to improve the learning and development journeys of the children they work with. Now, Jane Jackson um, did some really interesting quantitative research of looking at the census and then examining um, educators within that. So she was able to look at the different layers of um, of educators within, within that census data by... Um, unpacking their qualifications and where they worked and those sorts of things. And I'm not talking about the workforce data because the workforce data is really not rich enough for us to do any meaningful study of at the moment. And uh, we don't get sort of deep down into those layers. So this was uh, really fascinating. Now, Jen's um, dissertation is apparently online, which I'll try and find so that not just for my own purpose, but um, so that uh, others can, can read it as well, because I think it's going to be very interesting. Um, she found that educators are at a disadvantage um, and it's really hard to know what to do with that information, meaning there's a great deal of uh, inequality in income here. And one of the things that I found fascinating was that there is a subsidisation of income for educators within um, the sector. So that means that quite often people are working in the sector and their incomes are being subsidised by either their partners in the household or obviously they have to go out to work at another job. Now I think we've observed this um, phenomena quite often in the sector and it, it really does create a lot of challenges and issues for early childhood educators both from the perspective of that educator themselves and also from an organisational perspective because we're dealing with educators who are really under pressure um, in terms of their income 
Uh, there must be some really interesting issues around power in households to do with that, but also they're quite often going out and having um, uh, having to take other jobs in order to subsidise their own income. Now, this um, work was then, um, the qualitative area was 86 interviews, which is a lot of interviews by Andrea Nolan with uh, early childhood educators and looking at the the stories beneath those differences uh, that there exist in terms of income and, um, and socioeconomic uh, aspects of their um, of their profiles within the general landscape of Australia. Now, I, I don't want to try to explain this because I know that I'll get it wrong, but really all this is saying is you've got to get there and have a look at this data because it's going to be very interesting in the future and it's probably data or uh, the, a research study that we can do more work from and think more about the inequalities that exist for early childhood educators. They were looking at this as a very, they're looking at it from a positive perspective as well because um, they wanted to ensure that this kind of wasn't a um, challenging news study. And so they, they were looking at the opportunities for supporting educators' professional learning using the diversity that exists in educator background and also thinking about the implications for children within early childhood education and care settings. And again, as I said, I don't want to go deeply into this because I was only there for a very short presentation, but I found this one fascinating and had um, lots to say about the status of early childhood educators and the future for the sector as well. Professor Sharon Goldfield from the Centre for Community Child Health gave a presentation on some of the initiatives that are being undertaken through the Centre for Community Child Health and the Murdoch Institute. And if anybody's familiar with their work, they know the extraordinary range of work that they do. Um, and the focus is for for the organisations is how we can keep populations of children healthy and particularly looking at the first thousand days. So there are some very large scale research projects that are happening um, and often in collaboration with a whole range of other organisations. It was fascinating one slide that she put up had so many different organisations on it in a collaboration that you could almost not see who was actually participating. Um, but it's great to see such large-scale collaborations that are focused on children's health and well-being. A couple of things that she said really resonated. One is that you can't change the socioeconomic disadvantage, but there are disruptors. So where um, children live really matters and it has a big impact. And they've done some uh, mapping of where services are uh, located and available. I think some of this work has been done through the Australian Early Development Census as well. But there is, you know, a real um, deficit of services that are provided in areas that really need it. And so things like speech pathology is located in areas where there's the greatest advantage. So the children who are disadvantaged are missing out, really reinforcing this idea that where you live matters. And it's um, some of this policymaking stuff that they're trying to advocate for is going to change children's chances, and that's going to be driven by the data. 
They've got a few different studies, Kids in Communities Studies, which is the one with the large number of partners. Um, and it's uh, looking at what's happening in communities for children, what services are being provided for them, what how they're being supported. She noted that, um, I'd never thought about this before, but the, the age of the silver bullet has passed. And, and what that kind of means is that we've taken care of water, we've taken care of sanitation in this country mostly. Um, and so now it's the really wicked problems that we have. And there are infrastructure problems. There are these uh, issues around disadvantage. There's a whole range of components of the challenges that we're facing in keeping children healthy. And some of us would say that early childhood education could probably sort quite a lot of these problems out. Um, and I don't think Professor Goldfield would disagree with that. There, there, were, there was something else that she said, and I thought this was um, very important for us to think about from an early childhood perspective. In looking at where some of the greatest success rates in terms of interventions occur, we see them in immunisation and we see them in leukaemia treatments. And the reason why there's such great success in these particular interventions is because, first of all, people accept that it's good, it's available equitably, and good data is kept on each of these. I thought this was something that was really important for um, early childhood professionals to think about and in promoting some of the thinking around early childhood education. How can we do these things in early childhood education? First of all, um, have people accept that it is good, it works. Um, and we have lots of evidence of that, but we're still fighting this battle of getting this message across. The second is that it's available equitably. Now, we like to think that there's universal access in Australia to early childhood education, but we know that that's not a fact. We're seeing early childhood education distributed differently across Australia and people's access being different to that as well. And there's a few uh, reasons for that. The cost of early childhood education, the availability in the right places. We know rural and remote areas are really underdone in terms of early childhood education. Um, have some of the most extraordinary centres, but uh, in terms of great funding and opportunity there, there are some challenges. And probably the good data issue is one for us as well. Um, how is data being kept on early childhood education at the moment? So there were three components where immunisation and leukaemia treatments had really been allowed to progress. So I thought that was something, a great takeaway from uh, Sharon's presentation about what we can be thinking about in terms of getting the early childhood message out and also in ensuring that all children... Um, have access to early childhood education. There were a couple of studies that uh, we'll put links to the website on, which you know are incredible from the Centre for Community Health and the Murdoch Children's Institute. And there's good support and funding for these studies, but they also take big data and break it down and help us to understand these problems. There is a new um, initiative called Generation Victoria, and I know this uh, in Victoria there's a lot of work being done around children's uh, health, well-being and education. So this is just another one of these fantastic things and it's trying to bring a whole lot of really big data together and uh, almost use it as a, a way for people to dig into it for their research but also research can springboard off this. Um, 
and they're trying to solve four key issues. First of all, turn around unprecedented rates of adult diseases, reduce the burden of modern epidemics for children, things like school failure, depression, obesity, autism, asthma and antisocial behaviours, change the landscape of how large-scale research happens and reap the full benefit of Victoria's investing into its outstanding health and educational services. Fourth one sounds like a bit of a political uh, trope there, but that's the the work that could be done from this uh, Gen V initiative is could be very astounding and a real, you know, we might see real progress in Victoria and probably other states could um, look at the lead that Victoria has taken. At the end of day one, there was a panel of professors from uh, three different universities. There was uh, Professor Sue Grishaber from La Trobe University, Professor Linda Harrison from Macquarie University and Professor Jane White from RMIT. And you can imagine it was a very, very clever panel. Uh, It was focusing actually on the use of um, different methodological uh, approaches for research and these professors have been involved been involved in a whole range of different research and have incredible um, capacity to take on different methodological approaches but they were focusing predominantly on video and it was really enjoyable to hear Linda talking about her first um, work as a researcher in the field of psychology which was with the attachment theory and I think any early childhood professional can remember being shown these attachment videos with children in rooms and uh, their primary caregiver spending time with them and then leaving the room. It sort of strikes horror into my heart these days but I guess it's a a very still a very valid study of attachment and uh, what that looks like. So she reflected on that and I thought that was really interesting and also some of the um, studies using children's drawings as well uh, and looking at those through a a global ratings lens for positive and negative dimensions. Um, So it's interesting to hear that historical reflection. Uh, The other perspectives on on the video um, talked about how we can get a, a sort of multi, multifocal ethnography and it gives, um, I suppose, exposure to a whole range of, of voices and a whole range of perspectives, which helps us to understand um, what children are seeing, what the, you know, what, what, what we're seeing as educators and what's happening in the environment in a lot, lots of different ways. And they talked about this polyphonic way, which sounded very complex to me. Um, but it it allows the characters to speak on behalf of themselves as opposed to uh, the observation always being through this kind of lens uh, where you, you're taking observations. Um, there was an interesting discussion about the responsibilities that are inherent in things like video. If you see things in these that seem uh, like they're unethical practice or they're counter to good practice, can you unsee this? And what are our responsibilities in the um, in the work of, of video methodology? So there's, there, I think that we have lots of ways of thinking about ethics, but 
how do you address those as a researcher? And it's always very challenging in that way to think about when you've seen something, how you address that and how you um, actually respond to that and talk about it. So that was that was just an interesting one in terms of the historical use of a video and how it's still being used. And uh, Jane White is doing some uh, amazing work with uh, videos sitting side by side with um, a whole, sorry, video that looks at a whole range of perspectives at the same time. So I think there'll be some very interesting work that comes out of that. Well, that's it for another week. Thank you again for everyone who's joined us uh, for for yet another episode. We're we're narrowing down on that magic 100th episode. But uh, until we're back with you next week, it's goodbye from me. And from me. And from me. You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leah McNicholas and produced by Leanne McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com. And while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.